This is the Horse Radio Network. You're listening to The Stall and Stable Show, ideas for happy horsekeeping. Did you know that most farm disasters are preventable? The old adage that horses are horses and therefore just ripe for catastrophe is more myth than fact. While it's true that keeping large flight animals in containers designed for human convenience presents many challenges, the problem isn't necessarily with the horses. It's with our lack of knowledge. My guest today, Dr. Rebecca Houston, is changing that by taking her knowledge and expertise in large animal rescue operations and sharing it with the horse world. This is an episode you don't want to miss, so listen in. This is episode 109 of the Stall and Stable Show. I'm your host, Helena Harris. Today is Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Our sponsor this week is American Stalls. Horse stall equipment is one of the largest investments that you'll make for your horse's safety and comfort. This is why American Stalls focuses on equipment that fits more than just the inside of your barn. Their mission is to design products that fit your farm, your design goals, and your lifestyle. And it all has to stand the test of time. You know what they say, do it right or do it over. Well, no one in the horse world has the time or the money to do things over. So doing it right the first time means doing it with American stalls. To learn all about their extensive selection of fine stall equipment, visit them online at AmericanStalls.com. Or follow them on Facebook and Instagram, where you'll find lots of great photos of their products. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Rebecca Houston, large animal rescue expert and first responder. Rebecca and I talk about the most common emergencies in barns and what we can do to limit our risk, from horses getting cast in stalls to whether or not ponds are appropriate for horse properties, and most importantly, how to prevent barn fires. Dr. Houston is the president of Technical Large Animal Emergency Rescue, an organization that educates and trains people in the practical, technical considerations behind the specialty rescue of large animals. Think overturned trailers, getting stuck in the mud, icy ponds, and barn fires. Rebecca published the first ever textbook on technical large animal rescue way back in 2008. But that's not her only accomplishment. She is also a decorated U.S. combat veteran and has a Ph.D. in animal physiology from Clemson University. Dr. Houston has published numerous articles on large animal disaster and emergency rescue and barn fires. She's a principal member of the National Fire Protection Association and continues to teach and train around the world. I am so grateful to have her as my guest today. Good morning, Rebecca, and welcome to Stall and Stable. Good morning. Thank you for having me. (laughs) For our listeners, you know, for every um, interview and guest I have, we always have a little chat before we actually start recording. And honestly, that's when the best stuff happens. So (laughs) uh, we're we're giggling because every time I sit down to the microphone and I hit the record button, something happens. Something falls, a cat meows, horses start galloping outside, someone turns the hose on. This is just life. Real life. With Real animals, life. right? 
So we're going to talk to Rebecca today about a couple of things. She is with the Technical Large Animal Emergency Rescue, as I mentioned in the opening of this episode. And, you know, rescuing large animals can mean a gazillion different things. So, <laughs> I, Rebecca, I'm just going to ask you, what is Technical Large Animal Emergency Rescue? What does a day in the life look like for you? And then what kinds of things can we do in our barns and with our horses that um, that will help prevent us from having to call you. Fantastic. So Technical Large Animal Emergency Rescue really is working with veterinarians and firefighters to assist with situations where a horse may end up in a trailer incident, mud hole, even down in a stall, uh, jumps out of his stall, uh, all the crazy things that horses do. And pe horse people always talk about bubble wrapping their horses. But honestly, a lot of it comes down to the built environment, right? It's it's interaction with some of the things that we have put in their way as obstacles. And they they interact with that obstacle in a way that we don't really want them to. And because it's a 1,200-pound fractious animal that has steel shoes on its feet and doesn't understand our language very well, um, we end up in those situations. So obviously, it, the veterinarian is our first call. And the other call that we make is 911. And a lot of horse people don't seem to understand that call 911 uh, because what happens is they lose time trying to fiddle around, trying to do something to try to get their horse out of whatever. If they don't have any training and they don't have the equipment, why not call 911? 911, that's what they do for a living. It's a puzzle solving job. I'm also a firefighter, full disclosure. My husband is too. And that's what we, we love to do. It's a puzzle solving job. You know, I never would have even thought about calling 911. I mean, there's value in this episode right there. If only for the extra extra hands on deck, people who are good in a crisis, you know, people who can think right. on their feet. I always like to say, oh, yeah, I'd be great in an emergency. I'm, I'm a good critical thinker. But you just never know how your brain is going to shut down and how it's going to operate. So having people on your team or on the way who can think in crisis situations – it's, a, it's an emotional that. situation for the, usually for the horse owner. It's a very emotional situation. It, it's like I tell people, you know, we also teach um, firefighters and emergency responders and police officers how to, how to shoot something because sometimes that's what you have to do. But people go, oh my God, isn't that an emotional thing? Yeah. If it's my horse, I mean, I don't want to ever have to shoot my horse. Your horse, I'll shoot your horse all day long. Doesn't bother me in the least because I'm not emotionally attached to it, right? But I expect you to have an emotional reaction to your animal. And that's probably the biggest problem we run into is, you know, you run that barn, you do all the things you do all day long, no problem. Emotionally, when something like this happens, your brain goes, oh, I don't know what to do. And the biggest thing for a lot of people not understanding is that there's so much more associated with the situation, especially if it's a trailer incident or it's loose horses on the side of the road or a horse that got hit, God forbid, on the side of the road. Um, it's not about the horse anymore. It's about the side of the road. The most dangerous place you can be is on the side of the road. And the Especially other dangerous place that you can, yeah, the other dangerous place you can be is, believe it or not, in a stall. Something that we as horse people take totally for granted. But a, a vet, if you ask a veterinarian or horse person, they go, oh, well, it's a stall. It's not that dangerous. A firefighter? They look at that as a 12 by 12 confined space with an obstacle in it that wears steel shoes and can hurt somebody. And, and can so, crash and, yeah. yeah. 
and people get hurt in stalls with their own horses all the time. They can be picking a stall with getting the manure out and get hurt by a horse that just gets a little fractious or gets a little silly and and bumps into you. People get crushed in stalls. They get trampled in stalls. It's, uh, I'm never going in a stall again. <laughs> I know. I'm not trying to make people afraid, but no. you know, see it through new eyes. See it through the eyes of a professional that deals yeah. with these kinds of situations. And then, of course, if the horse is trapped in mud or a trench, no horse person has any expertise at how to, you know, I, I tell people, I don't care if you've had horses for 50 years. Have you ever dealt with a down horse? Um, how often do you deal with that in your whole career? You know, even veterinarians, maybe a couple times a year. How often do you deal with trailer wrecks? How often do you deal with these things? And really, it comes down to firefighters deal with this stuff almost every single day. They have to deal with the the safety problems on the side of the road. They have to deal with confined issues, space issues. They have to deal with heavy lifts or moving, manipulating heavy, you know, a thousand pounds. And how we handle those things is very different from what people expect. So the organization, what does it do? Is it education? Do you actually go out? What What's your coverage area? Yes. So um, yes, at home, the first thing I did when I moved to uh, Gray, Georgia, was I joined the fire department and got everybody around here trained. And that way, when I go off to do my education things, uh, they can handle the situations that happen around home. Um, yes, I sometimes end up consulting on the phone. I will have uh, usually a fire chief or a veterinarian that calls me and says, hey, Rebecca, uh, we're, you know, we've got a horse down in a trench. And I ask them, send me a picture. I mean, that's the beauty of technology these days, right? Send me a picture and a 10 second video. And then I can give them some suggestions on how they might more easily or, you know, none of this is easy, but it easier, uh, more easily (laughs) um, deal with the situation to keep people safe, but also for the horse's safety. Because in the past, what people used to do is put something around its neck and pull with a rope. And there's way too many awful stories of tails being pulled off, heads being pulled off, oh, Jesus. Uh, feet being, you know, degloved, all those things from people slapping a rope around an animal. And there's so much easier ways to do it. And it really comes down to uh, a 10-foot looped-in piece of webbing. And that's what most veterinarians and firefighters are going to end up using to extricate something from a situation. Or even in a stall. If you're trying to to move a horse that gets cast in a stall, that's probably the most common thing that happens to horse people. Um, why do you have a horse in a stall? That's a whole nother conversation, right? Anyway. Yeah, we but, know how I know. feel about that. Uh, so what are the most common emergency situations that require rescue, that require outside help in barns? I, I, I don't want to talk about trailering. We maybe we you can come back and we can do that another time. Yep. Um, but in barns, what do you find are the most common? Cast in the stall, usually a horse that's uh, you know might be a little bit older, or maybe it's uh, laying down, rolling those kind of things. Just ends up with his feet up against the wall, and often the easiest way to deal with that is get a piece of webbing around the front end and pull him away from the wall. And that way he can get his feet underneath him because it's really a turtle problem, right? It's like flipping a turtle over. They just can't get their their feet underneath them. But sometimes it's a situation where it's an older horse or a little arthritis or, you know, I mean, I'm over 50 now. I understand that totally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I can get uh, out of bed some days. (laughs) Sometimes you just need to to roll the horse. Uh, The problem is in a 10 by 10 or a 12 by 12 stall, 
you know, once you roll the horse, you know where his feet are going to end up is where you're standing. So that can be uh, definitely challenging as well. But we suggest that people use pieces of webbing to just drag them away from the wall of, of the stall, and it gives them a little more room to get their feet underneath them. That often works. And then what I usually tell people is if it's an arthritis problem, don't ever put that horse back in the stall. Why would you do that? Because you're just setting him up for failure. Hmm. The second thing that we see in barns is, of course, the over-the-stall uh, door. Like put a horse in there. door? Mm-hmm. And what's funny is uh, that if you look at the way that stall doors are put together, usually you have to lift the pins to be able to get the horse out and drop the door, right? So that that suggests that you probably need to get the weight of the horse off the stall door to be able to get him up. That's really tough. Now, there are a few horses in the world that are gracious enough and patient enough that you can bring in some pieces of wood and chalk it up on both sides so that the horse's weight is up off the door and then you can pull the pins and drop the door. Um, but there's about three of those. <laughs> <laughs> usually it involves a veterinarian for some sedation to get the animal calm. Uh, I usually tell people first things you can do, uh, first aid would be put on a halter so you've got head control and give him some something that he likes, some alfalfa hay, something, keep him calm while the veterinarian's on their way. And then call 911 because the average stall, there's nothing that you can do. You don't have the equipment to be able to take that stall apart by yourself. Because, you know, like you and me, most of the time it's me, my husband, and who else? Who's Who else is going right. to help? You know, you call a couple of friends and they're 112 pounds and they don't have any tools. So what are they going to do? So what happens when the first responders, you call 911 and the first responders show up and they have zero horse experience? What do you, what do they do? What do you tell them to do? It doesn't matter. And, and you're right. That's what most horse people think is, well, they don't know anything about horses. That doesn't matter. You are the horse owner. You should know something about handling horses, right? So you can advise as far as being the ho horse handler or the animal handler what, that we call uh, for that. And then you're going to have the vet on the scene. I usually tell 911, I tell all the firefighters I work with, emergency management, that you don't go unless there's a veterinarian coming. Now, the veterinarian may not be there yet for all the reasons that we know, which is always that, you know, they're on the other end of the county. Yeah. They're working, you know, doing an emergency colic surgery or something somewhere else. But they certainly can advise you over the phone if you have that, you know, I'm sure you've talked to plenty of veterinarians that talk about that very important uh, patient-client relationship. And if it's your vet and they can get a 10-second video, they can give you some advice, and they can coordinate with you, and they'll obviously be on their way. And then when the firefighters get there, they can break the stall down. They know how to take, believe me, that's one of the reasons they love to be in the fire department. You get to take stuff apart. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's nicer if you take it apart where you can actually put it back together. Um, in, in general, <laughs> that may or may not happen in these kinds of situations. But honestly, who cares? You know, if it's my horse that's hung over a door, uh, it, the problem is if he continues to struggle and actually tries to get himself off that door and comes forward, you know the first structures he's going to impact is his stifles. Mm. And you know all the problems with stifle injuries. I mean, that's awful. And then, of course, if he drags himself, he can actually gut himself. And we don't want that to happen either. I should have prepared myself better emotionally for this conversation. And I guess we can talk about this at some point in this conversation. Um, once you see 
what can happen. It's hard to unsee it. And at least I think if you are a first responder and you've got your hands in it, what I have found when I was a small animal vet tech and we had emergencies come in, um, I was so busy being in crisis mode and let's fix this mode and let's let's get this done mode. You don't have a second to stop to think about the emotions and the backstory, the context of what happened. Now that I'm not in it the way you are, I have nothing but context and, and nothing but emotion. So it's very difficult for me to hear about these kinds of situations, especially knowing that a good chunk of them may be preventable. So I want to go back a second. You talked about being cast in a stall as a very common problem in barns. Give me, you know, the the next, the, the second and third most common problems. Um, do you want to talk about barn fire? Okay. Barn fire. Yep. Barn fires are an extremely preventable problem. And sadly, we lose lots of horses to those kinds of situations. And part of the problem is uh, I, like you, go around the world and I go in places that are absolutely stunning, beautiful <laughs> chandeliers and and gorgeous. And I often tell people, even you know, rich people, and I tell them, sweetie, you got to take those fans out of this barn. And they go, well you know, we just don't have really good ventilation in here. And I go, yep, that's because there is a industry-wide, there is something that goes back to how the military did things with animals. And they put them in stalls and they built these traditional type barns and we've been using them for hundreds of years. But nobody, I have a joke about, if a veterinarian a structural engineer and a ventilation engineer and a firefighter met in a bar and designed a barn, it would look nothing like what we do with barns today because we don't design them for good ventilation. And even in, the, in those fancy barns, they'll be standing in the aisleway and they say, oh, man, there's plenty of ventilation in here. And I go, okay, what I usually do, and I mean, people look at me funny and they sometimes aren't too happy with me, but I will take them into a stall that has, you know, they just took the horse out and then I make them get down on their knees with their face right above all the shavings and all that. And I say, why don't you just, you know, a horse has to sleep in here. He has to breathe that. His nose when he's sleeping is right there. So I want you to lay there and stand, sit there on your, on your hands and knees for about 15 minutes and tell me how good you feel. And, and they, you know, it's not just about the ammonia. It's not just about the dust. It's about oh my God, there's no ventilation in here. And if you put those crappy Lasco fans, even sent a thing into the horse many, many years ago and said, please do not buy our fans for barns. They are not rated for barns. Please don't buy them because they've caused so many barn fires. So it's a ventilation problem. It's a, a I don't understand kind of problem. And then of course, from the perspective of barn fires, if you're building barns, the easiest way to make sure that you can get your horse out of a barn fire is no firefighter in his in his right mind is going to let you run down the interior aisle because of the way that barn, it's the old tradition, that's the way barns were built. You know, years ago, do, do you remember, um, yeah, you must, do you remember the movie Backdraft? Oh, yeah. Okay. When I saw that movie, it was the first time I truly appreciated the physics of space, of design, and airflow, and how it can impact the way a fire travels through a structure. 
And I don't think anybody's really talked about Barnes in that way, except for you guys. Yep. And, and that's exactly the type of thing. I mean, from ridge vents it's to cupolas to ventilation on the floor and orientation of the building on the lot and prevailing winds. And that that's all well and good. And everyone's like, yeah, that's science. I, I, I'll get it. I'll, I'll cover that someday. Except you now have animals that are locked in a box in that structure. They cannot escape. Yep. And if you don't have a stall door to the outside wall, you will not get your horses out. The, the challenge that I always give people that come to my classes is I want you to time it. I want you to start at the end of the barn with two people, and I want you to run down the barn aisle and time it, catch each horse individually, run down and dump them in a paddock, shut the gate, because, of course, you know what happens if you don't shut the gate. They'll be right back at the barn. Um, and evacuate your barn and tell me how long it takes you to evacuate that barn. And even a four-star barn, unless you're an Olympic runner and you've practiced this a lot, catching individual horses and moving them to a paddock, putting them in the paddock and, and going back and getting the rest, it takes a lot more than five to seven minutes. And NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association that I work with, I'm on the NFPA 150 technical committee, and We've done the research and we'll tell you five to seven minutes of what you got to what we call a non-survivable atmosphere. In other words. Oh my gosh, five to seven minutes? Five to seven minutes in the average barn. Now, a barn that has been built to be more difficult to burn, um, barns where we don't have the extra things like hay bales above the the horses, um, we've put in some of the finishes that are... There's no such thing as something that won't burn, but there's things that burn slower. Like the fire rated walls. Right. Like the drywall. Kind of things. Yep. Yeah. Um, so it can be done. It can slow it down. We can use uh, compartmentalization of the barn where you slow down the fire to one section of the barn. But overall, the biggest things that we get out of this is five to seven minutes. So I encourage you to do it. Just try it. And if you can evacuate your barn with two people standing there in five to seven minutes, great. But that means that those last minutes, the smoke is starting to bank down. It's starting to affect your breathing. It's going to affect your performance horses. They aren't going to be performance horses after that. And that's where we get ourselves in trouble. So we talk about the simplest way to get animals out of a barn is by the outside wall, having a stall door to the outside wall. That is proven to be the easiest way to get animals out of a barn fire. Even if they have just a run out, it's easier to go and open yep. the gate from the run out to the larger pasture or paddock than it is to go back into the barn and open a door, right? Then, So even the humans are at less risk when you've got the run outs. Exactly. They're, they're not. That's a good point. So the thing is, people always say, oh, well, they run back into a barn. Yes, they do, because they run back down the interior aisle to get to their friends. But if they have the option to leave, they will leave the barn area out into a paddock while the barn is burning to the ground. And having a run-out plan, even if you don't have, for whatever reason, you've already got a barn that's been built and there's no option to add the outside paddocks, can you practice a cue and send the animals out as a group? opening stall doors, teach them a cue, and they run out. Now, you and I both know most people are never going to do that because what's going to happen is your horse has been waiting its whole life to kill my horse, and they never get together, and they will have a fight, or there's a stallion involved, and they will have sex right there in the middle of the barn aisle, in the middle of a barn fire, because that's what they do. But if you practice those cues, it's all about the plan. 
Do we have a plan? And does everybody that works at my facility know the plan? The employees, the trainers, the veterinarians, the kids that come to take their lessons. Does everybody know what the plan is? We do this stuff all the time at the schools, right? We, we have lockdown plans for active shooter. We have lockdown plans for or get out plans for fires. We never do it at our facilities. Why? I don't know. Take a look around and take a, a, a simple survey of, the, of your friends. How many of them have a safety meeting every single month where they actually sit down and talk about what are things that we can do to make sure that we have a safe barn? Rebecca, if they have any meeting once a month, it would be a miracle. But you know why? Because this kind of thing, because it appears to not happen often, safety measures and safety plans get put to the bottom of the priority list. I would like for you to tell our listeners that it happens more often than we think. You know, we like to say this, even for me in my recent experience with Clarabelle, it's not a matter of if, but when. So tell our listeners, because you see it all the time, this stuff happens all the time. What is the frequency of barn fires? It happens all the time. We track this stuff all the time. The huge barn fires where we lose 24 horses, 40 horses, 60 horses, that happens maybe 10, 12 times a year in North America. So those are the ones, of course, that you hear. But I'll tell you, there's lots of them that happen every single month that you lose two, you lose four, you lose six. And that hardly ever makes the news because there's a lot of human factors that are involved in that. There's embarrassment. There's some perspective that I'm going to lose my business because people think, oh my God, I must be, I did the wrong thing. And now people aren't going to want to keep their horses here or just the devastating loss. They don't want to have to deal with it. If it doesn't make it to the newspaper, it doesn't make it to Facebook, then it didn't happen, right? Oh no, it happened. But you're saying it happens and it happens a lot. It happens a lot. And it's, it is awful. What I do is I often follow up on these things, especially the big ones. I call up and I was just on the phone with a gal the other day that had one of these happen up in the Midwest. And it's been about six months. And I called to check on her because I said, hey, it's been about six months and it's been the holidays. Are you doing okay? And she said, man, it is tough. It is really tough. And I told her, I said, you know, I really encourage you to go get some mental health because, you know, now it's been six months, the excitement and the frustration and all the anger and the, the grief process is circling down. But now you really need some mental health. You know, we all got to learn from that. I, I don't want anybody to ever have to go through these things. But I will tell you that from the prevention side, the most important thing that any barn owner can do today is pick up the phone call someone to inspect your electrical in your barn. If it's been more than 10 years since you've had somebody in your barn looking at your electrical situation, call somebody and get them to come do that evaluation. You're going to spend a little bit of money, but I promise you it's going to be a lot cheaper than replacing your facility. It may even reduce your premium if you do that. Call your insurance company and say, hey, I had my electrical updated. Can you come out here? It may reduce your premium. Um, because you'd be amazed how many people get a barn that's new to them and they walk in and they check the lights and they say, oh, that works. You know, plug their coffee pot in. Oh, that works. Yeah. That's not an electrical inspection. 
you got to have somebody come out and actually look and run the lines and make sure everything's in conduit and make sure all those little things that get broken over the years, the GCFI outlets and the outdoor outlets, and then the little cover breaks off and then all those things. Yeah. I mean, what we don't know can really hurt us in terms of what wattage your light bulbs, you know, what wattage you're using and whether or not the wiring can handle that wattage. And when we had the electric done in our barn, our electrician said, listen, don't put anything brighter or stronger in here than I, I can't remember. I think 60 watts it was. It wasn't very bright. Um, and, and making sure you're using the right cords in those outlets. So I think our ignorance puts us at a lot of risk. But do we have time to go and become electricians and read up on, on this stuff? No. So you're right. You know, an inspection, it's like going to the dentist. I don't want to go because I don't want to hear them tell me that I need a root canal. <laughs> right. And, and it's and almost every single time you're going to end up, you know, if you ask them, um, hey, I want to come up to code, they're going to tell you it's going to be some expense. But, but, but you again. can ask them to prioritize, okay? Like, what right. do I absolutely have to fix now because it's dangerous? And what do, you know, what's phase one, get it done or you're at high risk? And then phase two, you really need to get this done, but it can wait just a little bit. Um, I that's one of the things, like even when I go to take my car in and, and you know, the service station is like, oh, you need to do $10,000 worth of work. I'm like, well, can you prioritize? <laughs> like, what's going to keep my car from falling apart on the highway? And, and what do I need to do in the next year? So don't be afraid, listeners, to have an electrician come out. And even if what they tell you is a little difficult for you to hear, just ask them to prioritize. Break it down into chunks that you can manage. And if you have extension cords, just get them to replace whatever you're running the extension cord to, just get them to replace that with conduit and hardwired in, whatever it is. Because a lot of people don't realize that the extension cords are intended for temporary use. And the way they define that is it's supervised. In other words, a person is standing close to that item. And anything you have on an extension cord, otherwise it's just a nightmare. And heater, the, the heaters, any of those kinds of things that are really pulling high wattage, you got to have somebody look at those. I don't want to be your friend if you've got a space heater in a barn. I don't care if it's in your tack room, it's your bathroom. I don't care. Or this time of year, people are getting chicks and little baby chicks, and they put a heat lamp in their barn. And we have a house here in Gray, Georgia, a few years ago that burned to the ground, the entire house, because the lady had put pine needles. It was going to be cold, that cold for Georgia, you know, like below freezing. Pine needles in the dog's kennel. And then she put a heat lamp in there. And of course, that caught on fire. They lost the dog, obviously. And then the fire extended to the house and she lost the entire thing. So heat lamps are an absolute no-no. They're awful. Yeah. I had a barn where I boarded my horse once and they insisted on leaving a space heater on overnight mm. in the barn where no one lived on the property to keep the bathroom pipes from freezing. Mm. And, uh, oh man, I, I couldn't get my horse out of there fast enough. And I talked to them. I spoke to them about it several times, and they insisted that it would, air quotes, it'll be fine. Oh, my God. How do you talk to people like that? If you live in a place that has those problems, it is a solvable problem. You have to spend some money. But the thing is, you, like you said, prioritize the expenses. I know that I live in a place where I'm going to have these problems. I know that I need to get my heaters hardwired. I need to make sure that it's not going to have any problems. Whatever I got to do, put it in the ground further, insulate it better, whatever I got to do, prioritize that expense so that over time, it's not so bad. 
just because it hasn't happened to you doesn't mean it's not happening frequently out there or that you're not at risk. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's like tossing a coin. Every day you go to the barn or every day you do lights out, you've got a 50-50 chance of something going wrong. Well, we can learn a lot from this lady that's up in Canada, um, in Ontario. She lost 48 horses in a barn fire, and she had a beautiful barn that was well-managed. She had had the insurance company out the month before. She had everything to the nth degree, you would think. But somebody, for whatever stupid reason, left something in the dryer. The dryer had a problem. The dryer started a fire, and it burned that barn to the ground. There was nothing alive in the barn. And you know what she did? She said, you know what? This is never going to happen to me again. So when she rebuilt her barn, she put the entire electrical system on a timer and it shuts off whenever everybody normally leaves, whatever it is, you know, eight o'clock at night or whatever. It shuts off the electrical to the entire barn. So nobody can turn anything on and screw it up. And I was like, wow, in some ways that's an extreme solution. But on the other hand, I don't blame her. She actually burned her hand on the door trying to open the door to the barn when she ran up there. You know what my solution is for that? I never lock anything in. Exactly. That's what kills them is when they're trapped inside. So think about, and this is why we talk about barn design for safety and good health care and financial health, financial safety. We're afraid to spend the money on safety issues because we don't know how much money's coming in and how much money's going out. That's one of the things that I try to help my clients with. Let's find out how much money you're spending and how much money you're getting in so that you don't have to cut corners on safety. And there's so many, so many educational opportunities out there. Equine Guelph, I do a lot of work with Equine Guelph and they're up in Canada, but they, they're around the world. Their educational stuff is online. And we do an entire class just on barn fires and how to prevent barn fires. And it's amazing. All right. One last question. And then I think I'm just going to have you back on a regular basis because this is there's so much to cover in your world. And I think we need to do this regularly. But I am shopping for horse property in the South. And one of the things I noticed that shows up a lot in some of these properties are ponds. And... It's clear that there are realtors out there who don't understand that a pond is not necessarily a benefit on a horse property. <laughs> and there's a lot of horse people who might think a pond is nice. What's your perspective on bodies of water on horse properties, especially when the horses have free access to that pond or bog? If you're looking in South Carolina, you're probably going to end up having either clay or sand. If it's sand, you're good. The bottom of that pond is is sand, you're, you're going to be good because then you can easily build an area where the animals can have access to drink, to play. They, they love to do those kind of things. That's what I do in my place. I limit their access to a particular part of the pond and I made sure that they've got a good grade into the area and they can get away from each other. So they have to have enough room to be able to do that. The rest of it needs to either be fenced off or some way to limit their access. If you know that it's a really boggy pond, you can spend the money on having an excavator come out and do all those things. That's obviously spent quite a bit of expense at that point. But if it's really boggy, fence it off. Up north, we tell people fence it off for six months out of the year because when it turns into surface ice, we see these horrific problems with horses going out on the surface of the ice. Perhaps that, depending on water level, it may not be a problem unless we get a drought. 
So here in the south, when we get droughts, that's when we see horses in the mud because that pond has not been mucky uh, where they could access the mucky part for years and years and years. And then the water level drops through four or five feet. Now the animals are going down into the muddy part. That's when they get trapped. So it comes down to managing it. I have a, a small pond that's about three feet deep that the animals can have access to. They get in and play, but it has a sand bottom. So I don't have to worry about them getting stuck in it. My bigger pond, they only have access at one end, and I graded it and put rock base and then put gravel on top of that. And then sand, yes, it cost me some money, but that way they have a safe way to get to the water. They can get in and play on that end of the pond, but they're not interested in the rest of the pond because it's been fenced off or it has a really steep bank. The other problem we see with horses in mud, and, and this is where it's so important to call your veterinarian, is veterinarians will tell you that they often see older horses or horses that have EMS, they have PPID, they have possibly laminitic changes happening, those kind of things. Those horses start getting trapped regularly in their, in their, in their own pasture where they've been for 30 years. And then all of a sudden you start getting them trapped. And what are they doing? They're probably self-medicating. Their feet are hot and they go into the mud. And then, of course, they've been there for a while. Now they're really trapped. So always, especially with those older horses or those horses that are metabolically challenged or those kind of things, it could be any chance of laminitis or some other change. And get your veterinarian involved and say, hey, this horse is spending a lot of time standing in the water and, and we've caught him. He's, he's been trapped once or twice. What could be going on here? Running water or mud, the, wherever it's cool, they will find a place to cool their hooves. This is great advice. Rebecca, tell people where they can find out more about what you do, your organization, and where they can find tips and videos and stuff like that on prevention. Absolutely. You can go to TLAER.org. There's also a technical large animal emergency rescue study group. <clears throat> it's not a player group. Um, you have to fill out a few questions, but you can join the study group on Facebook. And uh, if you Google my name, Dr. Rebecca Jimenez Husted, you will find and large animal rescue or horses or any of those things, you will find there's playlists and things on YouTube and all those things and everything. But I would really like to talk about trailers next time because we'll be getting into spring and people are getting excited about going out and doing things with their horses. And we really need to talk about trailer wreck prevention and the awful things that happen with that. Not even just turning it over, just, you know, having your trailer hitch come loose, those kind of things. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time this morning and your expertise. It makes me feel so much better that there are people out there like you who got this. They know this and they can help those of us out there who don't. <laughs> so again, my thanks. And for listeners, if you can't remember all of what we just talked about, go to stallandstable.com. This will be episode 109. You'll find show notes. And in those show notes will be links to all the places where you can find Rebecca and this information. All right. Thanks again for joining me. And we'll talk to you again real soon. I appreciate it. Well, I know you guys understand that this conversation with Rebecca was indeed just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many topics that we can dive into deeply when it comes to barn safety. So we're definitely going to have Rebecca back. If there's something in particular you'd like us to cover, send me an email. You can reach me through the website at stallandstable.com and click on the Contact Us button. If you run a horse business of any kind and you need help, go to stallandstable.com and click on the Consulting link. 
Thanks once again to our wonderful sponsor, American Stalls. You can find them online at AmericanStalls.com. And that's a wrap for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it.